Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. As usual, I'm your host, Cameron Ford. And of course, we're broadcasting out here in Scent City, Las Vegas. So on today's episode, I have a friend who I have known for, wow, 20 plus years now. And uh, back when I was a little uh, 20-something-year-old trying to start off my career, uh, this guest has, you see, he had written a book. He has now, since then, written multiple books. He's an author, subject matter expert, former police officer, runs one of the biggest canine software companies out there that tracks data for law enforcement. Without taking up any more, letting you explain it even further, Bob Eden, welcome to Canine's Talking Sense. Thanks, Cameron. So obviously there's there's going to be a segment of my audience that has not heard from you or knows who you are. There's another set of the audience that very much knows you. And then I think there's like the ones in the middle, the uh, law enforcement officers that are probably either just starting their career or they're four or five years into it. So a little bit for everybody. Tell us about you, you know, what you've done and then what you actually do or spend most of your time doing today. So my career started out back in the 80s. I started off as a police officer for the Delta Police Department, and uh, which is in British Columbia. And during that period of time, um, I we, when we first started, we didn't have a dog unit. So I ended up starting the dog unit for Delta. Uh, but I actually didn't even get in the program when I first started. I put in the uh, uh, the information that we required to go to council with to be able to uh, develop a canine unit, and I was still basically only two years into my career. So at that point in time, they hired four of the guys and put them on the job. Uh, about two years later, I did get into the unit, and that's what started my career as far as uh, formal policing career with police dogs. Um, I worked with Delta for a number of years, I ended up becoming uh, a trainer after going to numerous other courses outside of my own hook, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of Officers are very familiar with having to pay their own way. It, mm. it isn't a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, from there, I worked until 1991, at which point in time I started off a business because I felt um, that the things that I was going to didn't provide, uh, I think, what was needed out there. I was looking for some scenario based training that was non political, and it was very difficult to get that. As you know, uh, a lot of the training is very, very politically motivated, uh, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, who's doing the training and, and what style they have. So at that point in time, I started something called the International Police Canine Conference. We ran that conference for 20 years. Yeah. And that's how you and I met when yep. we came down and we did win in uh, Florida. Lake County. Yep. Lake down County, there. Florida. Yep. And you were kind enough to, to help us out there when you had your kennel facility there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we began our friendship. Yeah. Um, it went for 20 years. We ran over 4,000 dogs through that program, and it was a hands-on program uh, where you actually came and you, you did foundational training in the morning and in the afternoon you took lecture material, uh, and then in the evenings we did scenario-based training. So it was very intense. You'd start off at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we would work you through right through sometimes until midnight mm-hmm. every night, Monday mm-hmm. through Thursday, and then on the Friday we'd be done by about 1 in the afternoon. And it became kind of a mainstay for a lot of police agencies. We introduced muzzle work very early uh, back uh, in the 90s, back and then when it was almost unheard of yep. over North America. 
And it kind of grew exponentially as we continue to introduce it in our conferences. Mm -hmm. um, the instructors that I had were all handpicked. They weren't people that applied to come and, and work with me. There were people that I saw that I felt uh, based on their expertise, the fact that they had a sincere desire to help others, um, that was important to me. Yeah. Um, then the other part of it was that uh, they checked their egos at the door. That was important as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to have a sincere desire to help the handlers out there. And, and then the team was dedicated. And over a period of time, um, we ended up having about 18 steady uh, people that had uh, trainers that had worked with me during that period of time that stayed almost that entire time. A very, very good team. And uh, it became well known. During that same period of time, back in 91, that's when I also uh, had a program or a programming firm uh, start up CATS for me. And mm -hmm. the reason why I did that is because computers were just starting to come into vogue. I, at the time, even though I was out of British Columbia, I was a member of the Washington State Police Cannon Association, and they were into maintaining written logs back in those days. Yeah. And we just did it in a scribbler. So at that point in time, I tried to have somebody develop it for me. Uh, it was something that I started to uh, share around with others until it got me to the point where it needed to be improved upon. And uh, over and over again, we just kept developing it. Um, and it ended up becoming a business. And that's how uh, CATS uh, basically started. And it was named CATS for Canine Activity Tracking System. And that's kind of the background. Um, I did my first book in 1984. I did my second book. That was Dog Training for Law Enforcement. I did my second book in 1994, I believe. That's uh, Canine Officer's Manual. And then in November of this past year, December, actually, it was it was released was uh, Canine Supervis Supervisor's Manual, mm -hmm. which has just come out. Yeah. And that was, I mean, a, a very, you know, diverse career from, you know, being author to canine handler. You did a lot of this while you were you were working the job. You were still a full time police officer uh, for a lot of this. And it gave you a, a I think a lot better understanding of what was going on in law enforcement and you were able to help out with, it was obviously before social media and before things like podcasts and, and these other things you did it in books, which is the, our main way of communicating. That's how I first ever saw you was from the uh, police canine manual, uh, the, the canine handlers manual. And right. It, it, the, the frustrating part for me when I first got started is I went looking for resources mm -hmm. and there weren't any. Yeah. I think at the time there was only one book. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was when I tried to get my department to come on board to develop properly and I would go to other agencies and how, seeing how they were run. And I was one of these guys that was building my own car and selling T-shirts at events to raise money and so on and so forth. I could never understand that concept. It just, mm -hmm. to this day, I don't understand why we aren't properly budgeting for canine units. Yes. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have even today is getting proper budgeting for canine units. And so I was frustrated. And that's actually what pushed me, even though, to be quite frank, Cameron, I don't think I was in a proper position to actually write a book when I wrote my first book. <laughs> I don't think I had the proper experience. What I did have was a lot of frustration built up, and I wanted to put out whatever information I could possibly gather and put it on paper and put it in a format that might help somebody else that was like me who had been trying to locate 
something to guide them and help them along in starting a new unit and there wasn't anything out there once i got the book done that apparently from feedback that i got subsequent to that and even to this day i get people that approach me and said hey we started our unit based on and did our training based on your book and yet shortly after i got the first book done uh, i changed my whole concept of training from what I had learned <laughs> to your kind of routine. Yep. And uh, I asked the publisher not to continue publishing it. Um, that was dog training for law enforcement because I had gone from one style totally into a more operant conditioning um, mm -hmm. type of style and, and self-discovery type style of training that I felt was more effective. And uh, I didn't want people to have the old information that was in my opinion, a lot of it was very compulsive. Sure. So I changed my style and I, that's the downside of books. You can't just sort of update it real quick <laughs> and get the new version out. Right. Yep. So it's, it's been a, it's been a long process and very much a learning process for me. And to this day, I'm still learning. It, it just never stops. No, it never stops. And and that's, you know, obviously a passion you and I share. That's what, uh, one of the main things that we always hit it off is because, uh, we both love learning and we both have really watched each other change over these years and going through applying new, you know, like you said, we knew what we were, we thought what was the way back then and then went, Oh wait, this is different. But I think where, again, our common ground was we were always willing to tr change and try something different uh, versus, yeah, versus, yeah, versus the, well, it's not broken. I'm going to keep doing it this way, which was, you know, Hey, some people, they may not need to because they're only working a certain type of dog or they select for exactly what they're looking for. But in the position that you and I have both been in, especially, you know, that's the other thing I'm going to bring up is you were the OG of canine conferences. You know, the International Canine Conference was like the first one where law enforcement could get together, do training, get lots of good edu education um, in that format. You know, up until that point, it, it really didn't happen. It might have been like more locally, but you guys put the show on the road. You guys went to many different cities, put on lots, like you said, lots of lectures, but tons of hands-on I mean, so many canine teams, even I come across today, still do some of those scenarios that initially started with you guys back in back in the day, back in the early 2000s, traveling around, you know, United States and Canada doing those conferences. And what's funny is, as things have changed, the conferences now are less about working the dog and more about just informational sharing. You, there was so much logistics involved in what you. I mean, you guys had helicopters, ranges. You guys yes. had had to get buildings. So I understand why you know the conferences that are out there these days are like, you know what, we just do it at a nice hotel, ballrooms, conference rooms. All we got to do is just do this. You know, have a number of instructors. They do their little two-hour formats, and it's not about the dog training. But I think we're missing. I don't know. I mean, I guess our industry has changed enough because obviously there are plenty of seminars where the dogs get worked, but not at the same way or level that you guys did it. And that's the part I guess I'm guess I'm trying to say I miss is I miss the fact that you'd have a big conference like exists today, 
but you'd also be able to work your dog. Now, you can't do like a hit style conference and have 1,300 canine handlers there all working no. dogs. That'll never happen. You guys would man- What was the numbers that you guys would do at, the, at those days? How many dog teams would you guys do? We tried to do a minimum of 60. We did some that were a little bit less than that at times, mm-hmm. but usually a minimum of 60 would get us through so that I could at least pay the bills at that point. Um, but we had conferences that went up to 120, 130 dog teams. Wow. Um, and that's, that's getting up there as far as, especially when I've only got the 18 instructors, we would boost it up with, um, ad hoc instructors that would come in and assist us at times. I had a, um, a group of people that I could call on. However, our main core period, uh, number of people that we had in the, in the, uh, conference itself that were trainers, they, they're what made it work. I mean, I just coordinated it and put it together and developed the template for it and what I wanted taught. But it was the team members that really made it work, Cameron. Oh, it yeah. really was. Those guys were phenomenal. A mm-hmm. number of them, the vast majority of them, had been in some sort of a, a lethal confrontation while deploying a dog at some point in time. So the instructors that I had and that I handpicked, uh, along with everything else, were uh, people of experience, both yeah. male and female that we had, uh, that came on to teach for us. And, um, they had been there, done that. So they were teaching, not just theory mm-hmm. and informational type of information they're trying to spew out. Um, they were good at what they were doing as far as foundational training is concerned, but they were also very good when it came to tactics and scenario based training. And that's what I wanted. I wanted it to be well-rounded. Um, the goal the goal was for to these handlers to go home at the end of shift. Yeah. Um, regardless of what they run into, we want them to think their way through. We want them to make good deployment decisions, and we want them to go home to their families. And that's basically what it was all about. Yeah. And it was funny because I remember um, it was – I think it was the second time you guys came out. But it was after 9-11. It was like a good year or two after 9-11. And um, – I had gotten some hotels for you guys to train in and some other stuff. And then Bob Wright was doing the bomb dogs and he sets up, it was my first time seeing it. Um, the Nort or the, you know, the odor recognition test that the ATF does. And he sets that up and myself and all the bomb dog teams in the area at the time, because of course, after nine 11, there was a lot more bomb dogs and it was all of our first time training that. And man, did we hate that that day, that test, or I won't call it a test, but that evaluation doing the Nort, because the dogs hadn't seen that before. They hadn't been exposed to that. And though the dogs would find explosives in, I would say, your typical kind of scenario, it was super enlightening to see something as basic as an odor recognition test take the dogs off the rails because they just hadn't been exposed to it. But within a day or two, exposing the dogs to that, no problem. And it's so funny because that's back in, I'm going to say, let's just say 02. Here we are today, 20 years later, and odor recognition testing for drug dogs scares the shit out of them. <laughs> and, and But it's such a valuable thing. So I, I relate and understand to why some of the drug dog handlers like lose their mind when you tell them that an ORT could be part of a certification process coming up. But I'll let you kind of talk about, you know, how you guys, you know, brought detection into the conferences and then what's your feelings on odor recognition testing for 
basically any discipline in law enforcement that's required to go out and keep records and testify and things like that. You know what? The, initially, we started off as patrol only. Yep. And then as time went on, we got into uh, bringing in the explosives dogs and then also narcotics dogs. And that was left up to those who I felt were very um, secure in what they were doing with mm-hmm. that. Uh, people like you mentioned, Bob Wright, for example. And one thing about Bob is that he could be creative. Yeah. Bob one of the best trainers I have ever come across in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he's extremely detailed. Yes. He's extremely creative and he's extremely practical. He's an awesome teacher. He knows how to put the information across. Yeah. Uh, as far as ORT is concerned, auto recognition testing, that type of thing, not just ORT, but any type of varied testing that you could do that introduces something that is challenging and mm-hmm. unique is going to bring uh, bring talent forward that you might not think that you've had the ability to do in the past. It's going to teach you things that you may not have learned in the past. Uh, it's going to teach the dogs things that, mm-hmm. that they may not have run into in the past. Um, anything that you can do to challenge a team is is going to move you forward. I think too often, Cameron, we get caught in a rut. Mm-hmm. We'll do the same thing in training over and over again. I've seen training where you go to the training events. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? And the lawn chairs come out and yep. <laughs> and away we go, right? Yeah. Okay. But when you go into something and somebody throws something that's unique and new into it, I, the more that you can do that way, the more challenging that you can be, it's okay to fail as long as you learn from that failure and you figure out what, what, you need to do to change it, make it better, and you go and you attack it from that angle. Yep. So I, I think it's beneficial. The more that the more challenges that you put into it, the more beneficial it's going to be. For sure. I mean, and this will bring us into a lot of the records keeping part of it. But you know, like you said, we get into ruts, and just like you mentioned, so much of detection training we, we both know a lot of the handlers on the professional side love the sexy bite work uh it's also not just about the sexiness it's also about the life-saving aspects of it dealing with stress the dog dealing with stress handlers stress making good decisions all of this is extremely important it gets lots of well-deserved time but i do feel the scales kind of get out of balance because a lot of the litigation the numbers of litigation cases are in relation to detection. Um, high liability and bites and all that stuff is is obviously growing, but it's a very separate thing. In detection, though, especially with Fourth Amendment aspects, there has to be... The, the needle hadn't moved a whole lot in a number of years. Um, as you remember, and I bring this up from time to time on the podcast, the old mentality was we'd walk in with that four-inch binder, put it on the table, give it to that defense attorney and say, hey, here you go. Ha ha, have fun reading all my records, knowing that they really wouldn't. That has changed because now things are, like you said, uh, between your programs and the others that are out there, it's digitized now. It's much easier to consume this data, much easier to look at certain things or cue certain data points. Um, So that aspect has changed, which means what we should be doing in training and evaluation should also look at changing. Now, you, like me, we, we both sit on ASB, the Canines, uh, Canine and Sensor Committee, 
And these things get brought up, you know, data collection procedures, things like that. Odor recognition testing is a very basic form of an evaluation. Does the dog, can the dog sniff multiple of the same objects, whether it be paint cans, glass jars, you know, small metal boxes, whatever it is, and say yes or no, does odor exist at this particular one and working its way down until it finds whatever trained odor and indicates according to whatever the handler uh, trained the dog to do. That's basic. And then evaluations have to look at the operational aspect. So you have, on the one hand, a baseline. Does the dog know the odor, yes or no? Okay, here's that's what an ORT really does well. The next part of a certification should be looking at how does this team operate in conditions that basically simulate or match what they're trained to deploy in. What's your feelings on that? And, you know, because we still see today a vast majority of the national level certifications do the same thing they've done since the early 90s or mid 90s. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> a lot to unpack you, there. <laughs> you can take so many directions. You're you're like an attorney on the stand. Which question do you want me to answer first, right? Yeah. So, when it when it comes to, you've always got to maintain your foundation. That's that. Too often we go and we do sort of scenario based training, but it's always very much similar and. And it never really seems to change up that much. Mm -hmm. And But then we have a tendency, and it's both on the patrol side as well as on the detection side, but we have a tendency to get away from just going back to basics and doing the foundation work. Mm -hmm. The very very foundation work should, be, should continue to be done over and over and over again mm -hmm. so that that stays strong in the dog. If you have a strong foundation, everything else will start to fall into place very easily. Mm -hmm. But once that foundation starts to fall apart, it doesn't matter how much scenario-based training that you do, it's not going to follow through in the, with the same uh, quality mm -hmm. as it is if you're keeping that foundation strong. So for me, foundation building is, is very strong. Uh, the other thing is when you get into scenario-based training, again, it's about challenging. Um, you know, if you're doing the same thing over and over again and you're not changing, you're getting into a routine where you're not allowing the dog uh, or the handler for that matter, you're not challenging the dog or the handler with enough variety. So when they get into something that's a little unusual or a little bit more difficult, they're not quite sure how to handle that situation. So for me, the more diversity, more variety, and the more challenging um, events that you can do in any type of training that you have is going to better prepare you for what you deploy in. Um, the other thing is, is that I would venture to say that in some cases, some training takes place and it's very similar. It's going, it's going over suitcases or it's um, uh, in a down lockers in a school and so on and so forth. And it's pretty much the same thing all the way along, but those same dogs might be working out at an airport where there's a lot of crowds around them, that type of routine. And they don't get much of an opportunity to work where there's a lot of, um, a lot of people around that, a lot of distractions, that mm -hmm. type of thing that are outside of the control of the handler. And we need to be able to make arrangements to go to places that allow us the opportunity to train in more real life type situations. And it's much better for the dog and for the handler to be able to work through those, through those kinds of issues. Um, yeah. And I think in a lot of cases, we're lax on, on doing those types of things. 
Do you think certifications need to change or face some updating uh, from where we've been at and where we're at today? I think, yes. I think that certifications constantly need to be looked at because the industry is changing. Mm -hmm. And and as such, as the industry changes, you've got to go back and you've got to look at, okay, what have we got for certification now? What should we change to make it better? What are we doing now that we weren't doing before that we can relate to by getting a certification that relates more to what we're doing nowadays? And where are we going with it? It's not going to stop. It's going to continue to evolve. And so certifications need to evolve as well, depending on what orders you're adding into the fray, what kind of conditions that you're training in. Certifications, quite often, it's kind of cookie cutter. Um, how often do you do a certification, uh, for example, in an actual airport? Um, I don't know how often that takes place, but where you've got people around and so on and so forth. Uh, it's usually done in a more, uh, in the ones that I've seen, in a more clean environment. Um, and you can have other people around and so on and so forth, but it's not in the real life based type of, of situation. And I'd like to see a lot more of that type of thing included in the certifications. I really would. Yeah, it's, I mean, you're bringing up the same things I talk about quite a bit, which is we, it needs to match better what we do and it not be so cookie cutter. And absolutely. And, but the culture right now is back to that part about failure. We're so afraid of, well, if you make it too difficult, what happens? You know, um, and (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So I have seen over my years, certifications developed by new associations that come up and so on and so forth, where they develop a fairly easy certification standard so that it's easier for the dogs to pass through that standard. And that's not what this job is all about. And I'm not saying you have to have something that's so difficult that it makes it that difficult for the dogs to overcome whatever the challenge is. But you want to have something that is uh, distinctly um, viable from the perspective of it meets what the dog will meet on the street realistically in that particular dog's uh, form of service. So if he's a dog working in an airport, that's maybe where those certifications should take place. If it's a dog that's working exclusively in schools, then maybe there. If he's working both, then maybe part of the certification needs to take place in both. But these cookie cutter uh, type routines, they don't, all they do is they check off a few little boxes and you have to keep in mind that no matter what we do, uh, especially, but it's more so with the cookie cutter type certifications, I think, Cameron, all it is is it's a certification that shows how that dog performed for that moment in time only. It's not necessarily an indicator of how that dog performs over a long period of time or consistently. It's only did he do well on that particular day. And this is where the records come in to back up the dog. You want to have a training objective in your records, and then you want to do, you want to be able to record um, how that dog performs, so that that gives the consistency, the background of how the dog performs consistently, consistently over a period of time that backs up that certification. And that's where I think a lot of people are don't understand that. And I, I want to get into something specific about that, Carmen, just a little bit, because sure, I think it's ahead. I think it's important. And that's that we've had cases 
uh, one in Utah that I can think of, and, and there's others, one that occurred up here in Canada, where when they do record keeping and with the CAT system, we have the ability to not only do the drop down boxes, but you can add in, you know, your your descriptions and so on and so forth. And I'm sure other systems have the same thing. If you're a handler out there doing records, don't do it cheaply. In other words, make sure that you document things like changes of behavior. Don't just put down that the dog uh, committed a final because we've lost cases. One that I can think of in British Columbia with an RCMP uh, team that went out, got a very good hit on a van, ended up picking off a fairly decent uh, arrest out of it with a load that was on there. Uh, but it was thrown out of court because the officer talked always and had recorded only about the finals uh, being a sit by his dog. And there was never any explanation about the fact that I recognize that there's a change of behavior in the dog indicating a presence of uh, illicit narcotics or whatever uh, terminology that they want to use. All they, all they ever talked about was the final sit by the dog. If that's all that's ever recorded as showing a positive indicator for narcotics, uh, when you're doing a drug search, for example, and it goes to court and your dog is obviously giving you all the indicators, change of behavior, you know there's narcotics there, but for some reason he didn't do the sit. And the one in BC, the reason they gave there was that the, the vehicle was up tight against a, uh, an elevated curb uh, on the side of the highway and the, there wasn't enough room for the dog to actually where he got the hit, wasn't enough room for him. So he sort of stood there in between the, the van and uh, where the curbing was and never actually sat and they threw it out. Um, it's those types of things that we need to be cognizant of and don't be lazy when you're doing your record keeping. Um, it's a matter of maintaining as much information that you can because that is going to go to your benefit when it comes to court time. I, I totally remember that case. That case was, uh, uh, it even made it popular over here in the United States. There's a lot of teams that were panicking because of that ruling, even though it was in Canada. Um, were there going to be attorneys in the United States that took that approach about the final response? Did the dog go to it or not? And all of that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, you know, it's a really important conversation. Um, you kind of hit on this. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what are you writing in records in regards to indication? What have you seen as a trend, as a person who has access to this kind of data? And what, if any, crossover to the legal side, let's say in the U.S., have you seen with some of this information that's looked at on records keeping? Well, most of the record keeping that we do or that we maintain are for American law enforcement anyway. We have very few actually Canadian clients. They, the level of or the number of law enforcement agencies here in Canada doesn't near come anywhere near um, what you have down in the United States. So that's that's a big thing. Um, what I see is I see a lot of situations where some handlers will just basically use the drop downs. You know, they got an indication that that's fine. They're done with that. It was a hit or miss, that hit or miss. But then they don't go back and they don't put any comments in where the handler's comments are available for them within the system. And there's so many different avenues of thought. One avenue of thought, of course, that a lot of these handlers adhere to, and um, and it's dangerous in my opinion, is that the less that you put down, the less you're giving away to the defense when it comes time for court. But think logically of all this, and this is what's happening. It becomes a he says, she says kind of routine. 
it's one of those things where if I don't have it logged down, that I understand a change of behavior in my dog, that I was very apparent to me, it was very apparent to me that my dog got a change of behavior that indicated illicit narcotics on the vehicle. And as a result, I searched that vehicle and obtained drugs. It doesn't necessarily mean that dog has to have a sit mm -hmm. and, and to be a final. If that dog does do a sit as a final, that's fine. We train for that, and that's what we prefer to have. It's a distinctive, very distinctive indicator. But it doesn't mean that I don't understand what my dog is doing when I watch that behavior change. I know there's narcotics in that vehicle when I see that behavior change. So why don't I describe that in my comments when I'm recording it? And once it's there, then I can say, yeah, this is what I saw. This is what I observed. This is why I searched the vehicle. The judge says, let me see your records, and they want to go through the records. Yep, he's described this before, and it's it's a pure evidence that the, uh, the officer understands what his dog is doing, and it's very clear to the officer that there's narcotics there. So it's if you don't have that documented down, you've got nothing to back yourself up. Mm -hmm. And that's basically it in a nutshell. If it's not written down, it's not there. You, and you I've had a couple of occasions where people have subscribed to our system, and well into having it for two or three years, and this is important to note as well, I'll get a phone call from a supervisor and say, Bob, your system isn't working. And I'll say, what's the problem? They said, you know what, we've had the system for a number of years and I just got hit with a subpoena and I need to provide this documentation. It's on a dog bite case, for example, and our system maintains bite demographics. It goes by race. It, it breaks it all down for them. It tells all the details. You got use of force that is canine specific in there. There's so much that it can provide. And yet he's spitting out reports that are coming up subject arrested, and this is his name, and that's it. But <laughs> I can't seem to get the details out of it. Okay, well, let's go have a look. So we go and we bring up the actual file and find out that the officer hasn't put any details in either the training side or on the incident side that much because they're, they're going by this routine where maybe their trainer has advised them, don't put in too much information. You're going to give too much away. And it's not that the system isn't working, it's working. It's that the handlers are not putting in the information and they're leaving themselves hanging. And, and the sad part about it is that not only is it the handler responsibility, and it's probably, in my opinion, I think the trainers are giving them bad guidance in that mm -hmm. regard, mm -hmm. but it's also the supervisor's responsibility to check those records. They should be reading these files. We have the ability in the system to submit every file to the supervisor for, for scrutiny and for him to lock it down. And if it's not done right, he should be bouncing it back. So it's not just handler responsibility. It goes to trainer and it also goes to supervisor as well. Yeah, the, you bring up uh, a major one, and I see it a lot still today, which is don't put too much in your records for the exact same, exact same thing that you said, which was, Oh, if you put that information in your records, they'll use that against you. In this day and age, when the public and, of course, media does not trust law enforcement at all, being as transparent as possible is critical to help rebuild that trust in absolutely the, in the in the not just in, in law enforcement, then in the use of the dogs. I mean, these are dogs that affect people's right, you know, of being seized and to be less than transparent or to omit bits of information is a downside. And we have to get better about that. Um, you know, 
so many handlers I get a lot of times too when I'm at these events and doing seminars. Well, I don't want to put that in my records because we technically we ended the session and my dog found it, but you're also your dog missed it, you know. And we did corrective action, and this is how it ended. You got to put all of that information in there. Don't be afraid to put a miss. Don't be afraid to put in you know, whatever term you want to call it, false alert, non-productive response, all the different versions that are out there that people use, whatever you use, stick with that. But we have to document this. Everybody clearly understands there is no perfect dog and there is no perfect handler. So stop trying to make it look like we're perfect. That's another one of those issues that we have is when we do these records and we keep these records you know, uh, looking like, like the dog is at, at 95% accurate, every dog handler trainer out there will can, can easily tell you those, a, a dog is not that good. That just basically means in training, if you're, if you're that good in training, you're just not challenging yourself hard enough. Uh, obviously, the real world, we can't collect that same kind of data, but because you don't know what you miss and, you know, you don't know obviously if, if you also, you know, what you found is maybe just part of what was there. You know, there's there's so many variables, which is why the court cases have all said you can't use the deployment history as the barometer for the accuracy in, and proficiency of the canine team like the records are, which is, exactly. which is super important for the record keeping, but also why it's super important that we're honest about what our dogs are doing and what we're doing. Because many times it falls on the handler when we have an error um, that happens in training, it's most times falls back to the handler. So why not be honest about this? You know, what did we do? What did we cause? How did this happen? Because, you know, like we said, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case that clearly lays that out, that the records are very important or the most important thing for the evaluation of the credibility of the canine team. So that came, that came as a result of those records being yeah. submitted and the court, the lower court, not understanding correct florida the true value of it <laughs> yep, right absolutely I, the irony there is i trained that dog aldo aldo came from me oh really uh, yeah i was the i was the original certifying official on aldo um myself and matt gibbs and uh that dog then got switched to a another agency probably a few hundred miles away and that's where the case derived from. So, of course, we got called way back in the day about this case, about the certification, about the training. But we had nothing to do with once the dog was handed off to this other agency within that first year, because that's when the, they didn't recertify with that dog. So the only documented certification was the one that we had done with the previous handler, and they hadn't done it with uh, that current team. In any case, the the training records and, and the things that we had supplied, especially for me back then as the vendor, um, you know, at least established the dog knew what it was doing. Um, and it was proficient in that aspect. But like you said, the Florida courts, though, um, you know, misinterpreted some of those those legal aspects. But again, having good records, documenting both all the good things and the things that don't go so well is critical. Again, especially in today's day and age, super critical that we cover this and we and we are transparent about how the performance of the team is you know because, it's okay to fail yes yeah, it's okay to fail and just and document it yes and then the steps that's what we've got corrective mm -hmm. training in the mm -hmm. system you know yep. what corrective taking training steps we're going to take you log it down yep recheck the dog the dog's now doing good boom all those things are there 
They love it. Yeah. It's, it never creates a problem. What creates a problem is when all of a sudden everything's just perfect all the way along and mm-hmm. it's just one or two lines that, or maybe no lines at all. Mm-hmm. So you've got nothing to back you up. Mm-hmm. And then your credibility comes into question. Yep. And, and, and again, hopefully people become more comfortable with this idea uh, on that. Now, obviously, we've been doing detection dog work for a number of years. How have you seen detection dog training um, and or uh, just detection dog work in general has changed in, in the time that you've been doing this? Oh, my word. Uh, <laughs> man. Um, it's changed exponentially. Um, I can remember years ago when I, when I went down and developed the explosives dog program for the, uh, federal police in Brazil, uh, they'd never had any explosive dogs and they were prepping for the 2007 Pan American games. And we were using scent boxes basically with open backs that we could reach in and reward the dog by tucking a ball underneath. There was no such thing as as uh, ball poppers and all the rest of the equipment that we use now, um, the, the the types of equipment that we, um, you know, like your TADS devices that you can put narcotics in now to, uh, to put them in different areas. You can submerge them in water and still get the odor through it. It's just, it's incredible how much has changed. Um, the downside of that is that it's also... Uh, provided a lot more scientific aspect of things as far as the narcotics or any kind of detection work is concerned. So it makes it that much more onerous and responsibility going to the handlers to understand what they're doing and be able to describe it and explain it when it comes to court cases. Um, and that has that can be its own um, its own basically um, albatross as well if we don't know what we're we're dealing with a lot of times uh, we can get into fancy names and all sorts of stuff, but if we can't explain what it's all about, uh, all those fancy names don't, don't help us. So it's a matter of, as we grow, we have to make sure that we stay on top of things. We still try to keep the explanations as simple as we possibly can. So they're understandable to the layman that makes it easier for court. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we slow down our progression. We've got to keep on going and, and continue to improve in what we're doing, but it's been exponential from the days that I started. Yeah, and you know, you brought up another point too, which was us being good at describing when our dogs are smelling things that are not target. What does our dog do when it smells yeah. other animal smells or food or distractors and so on and so forth? And those things were never documented, you know, oh, up until true. and until recently. We never wrote down also how many blank areas we searched, and now that's becoming extremely important doing the uh, documenting searches that contain no odor. That has become a standard with record keeping nowadays. I've seen that uh, probably in the last, especially about the last five years, Cameron, mm-hmm. it's become just a standard thing. And, and with, with officers recording their information in the system um, and very valuable for them. It's, it's necessary. Uh, and it's nice to see that they're starting to Im- implement that. That's got to come from good training, whoever they're getting trained from. And when it comes to documentation, they're being taught what to document. And that makes a difference. Yeah. It's important that we, if we can show the machine works, we also have to show the machine works with the lack of a target present. And that was never documented. We never used to go, oh, okay, I I ran an unknown blank area. And now uh, 
I have to, I want to show this in records that I ran an area unknown to me. It actually contained no odor. And I was successful in calling that. Um, we never wrote that stuff down back when I was first doing this. You know, we didn't even write down the blank vehicles or the blank rooms. We just wrote down what we found and that was it. Well, it's the same, it's the same thing back in the day with tracking, don't, going to patrol dogs. Um, we designed the track so the dog was successful every time we were told to log the fact that the dog was 100% successful. Um, back in the day, that's what the expectation was and that's what was taught. We know now that that's not correct. We know that the dogs don't always have successes on every single track. And there's a reason why, and we need to improve on that. So by documenting that and then showing the steps taken to improve it, basically uh, we're getting the job done properly now and it's being accepted better in the court system. Now, I, I'm not going to get you deep in the weeds on the synthetic versus real argument, but what have you seen? I mean, because that was also something that's new for us. Um you know, I did a video recently where I just talked about, you know, not going into any brands or anything like that. I just talked about the importance of whatever we use, we need to test it. We need to know that it meets some sort of independent evaluation. Every chemist I've talked to says, you know, synthetics are something that um, will definitely and can work. But what where we're at today, there's not enough consistency in that answer. And... There's not enough information that can be articulated properly if we're, if it ever were challenged in the legal side of things of how it works and why it works. Um, what have you seen, I would say, more in the data collection or just in general what you've come across as a company that you know tracks this kind of information? Um, well, first of all, I don't go into a lot of it, to be honest with you, Cameron. I almost, I'm only in the system... Uh, because the data belongs to the, the end client. So unless mm -hmm. they need help, I'm not usually in the system. Sort of, I don't go through it and yeah, look yeah. at it. It's, it's yeah. really none of my business kind of routine. Sure. And I make a point of making sure that, that uh, um, I'm maintaining my integrity when it mm -hmm. comes to that part of it. Having said that, um, on some that I've seen, I, I see very few, um, I shouldn't say very few, I see fewer that use synthetic than use a uh, real product. But I also hear of complaints where it's difficult for some to get real product. Sure. Um, no, but no matter what you do, the fact of the matter is no matter what you do, the real product is the real product. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're going to run into on the street. And it's going to have other things in it that you're going to have to, to, to work with. Uh, even dope is going to be different from one part of the country, even the, one part of a state to another it could be formulated a little bit differently um it's it's a dog's breakfast really no pun intended <laughs> uh, when it comes when it comes to that type of thing um i recently wrote up the policy and the standards and the the uh, uh for the canadian embassies um up here um my choice and i'm not and it's important for me to stay say this and it's probably because I'm not fully trusting yet, uh, and it's probably because I'm not educated enough yet, but my choice was for the Canadian government in their embassies not to do any training or testing using any form mm -hmm. of synthetic mm -hmm. material. 
mm-hmm. uh, for their explosives dogs because this is what it was for. Yeah, uh, I think we've got 138 embassies around the world uh, from Canada. And uh, my policy when I wrote it for them, when I developed it for them, was only to use uh, real product in their training. Yeah. Um, I felt most secure with that. Um, I can't, and like I said, I can't really speak to what the trend is because I've never gone through our system to try to determine that. So um, it's not an answer or a question that I could answer legitimately for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you bring up very good points, which is, um, of course, we need to test and train with what we are expected to find. So that's a major part of that answer and to look at. Um, The other thing is, you know, back to the points of the chemists who I've been around, you know, due to the inconsistency nature of all the different potential products out there, that's another thing is, but with all of that said, and this is the same thing I said on my video that I had posted on the synthetic versus real arguments where nothing's perfect. That's for sure. You know, that's correct. All of these different things, whether it be the um, odor imprint aids, or they are to say the odor absorbed aids, whether it be uh, the calm imprint pads, um, to synthetics, to real, all of these things can have a place. It's like a, like a puzzle. Each little puzzle piece works, and it will fit into each other. Um, but when you're going to get to your testing, and of course your operational you and your dog better have significant education and experience in relation to the type of target you're looking for, whatever that is. Totally agree. I think if you're training a lot on synthetic, you've also got a, my thing, what I would, I would want to make sure that whatever we're training for on synthetic, I would want to be training for on the real thing. Mm -hmm. And I would want to be testing on the real thing. I wouldn't necessarily want to be uh, testing on synthetic. Uh, the dogs are used to that. If it's got a very finite, uh, you know, narrow uh, factor as far as detection is concerned, as far as the, the odor is concerned, there might be a little bit more latitude on the explosive side of it, on the real side of it. Uh, and the dog needs to be able to determine that on the real side of it. So I'd like to see um, if they're going to use both. I'd like to make sure that the actual testing or certification is done on what they would actually run into on the street, not necessarily something that they've been trained on on a consistent basis. I'm not sure if that makes sense the way I explain it, uh, but that's what would make me feel comfortable. Sure. Another good – so we've talked about these different data points so far. One is, you know, um, the evaluation slash, you know, uh, how the teams are being looked at. The next one is training in the aspects of what you're training on. Another one is like we talked about the blanks and things like that. Uh, then we talked about the the percentage of accuracy of the dog teams and not being afraid to you know write down our errors. Another interesting point to go into is search time. Uh, you know, again, I know you, like you said, you don't go looking into records or anything like that. But it was funny. I just talked about this on a Q and A, and I was talking about how the average search time, if you were to poll 100 handlers of all different types of disciplines, and you looked if they had records and you looked at those records, the average search time till the, for the dog starting the search to finding its first odor would be three minutes or less. Have you, you know, just from your own experience in, in years of doing this, have you seen a similar trend? Um, but what I was highlighting is 
by having records, it shows you this. You don't have to go out and pull people. By looking at records and the documentation, you can be like, holy cow, you know what? My average search time before I find something is only like three minutes, but my type of detection I do, vast majority of the search time is going to be, let's say, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. How often am I doing that? Um, that's just, like I said, I want to bring it as a topic for you to kind of elaborate on or your experience and what you've seen. So a lot of that, those short-term uh, short time frames, like you talk about under three minutes, a lot of that probably relates in large part to what you're searching, Cameron. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a lot of it is vehicles. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of searches guys are doing are vehicles. Doesn't take long to run a dog around a vehicle, Correct. so your search time is not going to be very, uh, very lengthy. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it depends on what it is that you're searching. Having said that, um, a dog needs to have the ability to do prolonged searches, um, you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes kind of routine before pooping out, if at all possible. You might need to take a break in between, give them a break, depending on how intense the dog is working. If you're trying to clear a stadium, for example... Uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna do that in three minutes. It just isn't gonna happen. <laughs> no. And you're gonna need multiple dog teams, and you're gonna need some time to get the job done. So it's a hard question to answer because it depends. It, the the uh, subject matter is so varied with what it is that you're searching. Uh, it would be entirely dependent on what the actual application of the dog is. Absolutely, and that's uh, a huge point. And. I was going to add the another reason why sometimes when you look at that data and it's a very quick find is because if a lot of their data had so many reps because they were doing fundamentals where, you know, let's say it's searching, you know, containers or boxes or a small room, like you said, or vehicles, whatever it is. And the average search, you know, is, is going to be low. So that's going to skew your number because if you do 25 of those searches that are at that type and you only do two or three of those longer searches, your numbers are going to be off. So it, an important thing that we always have to consider as I bring that point forward was, well, what is it that they're searching? The discipline, like you brought up, that they're in. and But despite those things, collecting that data will help us go, you know, I haven't really done X, whatever that is. In this case, we're talking about search time. How much search time have I, have I put my dog in? Um to see how it performs if the search is 10 minutes long. Because one of the things that I know many handlers and trainers see is a dog's internal clock. You know, as they're searching, as that time goes past that three minutes or whatever that typical, we're just using three minutes as an arbitrary number here. Um, as they go past that time, dogs begin to think something's broken. Well, I don't know why haven't I found this yet? What is going on? I have an issue, you know, and then we see abnormal behaviors. We see dogs doing things. It's like you putting in the dollar into the Coke machine and nothing comes out, which you, you, if you're willing to put a second one in and nothing comes out, what's your next one? An emotional response. You're shaking the machine. You're doing something, <laughs> you know, you're doing whatever you can to, to get that item out. So a dog who goes beyond its normal search time because we haven't done a good enough job to build out that duration. Um, it's important to see that because it's critical to learn this in training through that record keeping than it is to find it out on a real search. And you're bang on because they are masters when it comes to 
understanding what's going on around them, not only body language, but you talk about that that internal clock. Mm-hmm. We even used to use that in the old days when it came to bike work. We wanted to get the dog to come off a bike. We give them a count of one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, and then the correction comes when we call the out, and, and it would be time. So the dog knows that over that period of time, oh, something's coming, so I'm going to let go. And you get those dogs now would be popping off before you wanted them to pop off. Yep. So, and it's the same concept. It's exactly the same concept. Yep. Um, they do get, if you're doing the same routine over and over again, and it's always the same, you're going to get that clock built in there. So if you don't do anything more than five minutes on a, on a session, if you're not doing 20 minutes or 25 minutes or picking it off every, every once in a while in two minutes and, and having that variety there, your dog is going to set a certain point in time where, okay, I, I give up. I've had enough. There's no fun coming. So I'm not going to continue this. So it's a very, very important aspect of detection work. And it's super, like I said, it's just important that we collect this information, you know, when handlers, I'll, I'll I'll bring up search and rescue at the moment because in the law enforcement world, record keeping is considered normal. You know, you, you have to do it. Um, as I've traveled in the search and rescue community, some are really good. They keep great records and things like that. And then there's others that keep no records. Um, how, what has CAT seen? Has that been an emerging area for – has – search and rescue grown in record keeping what have you seen in relation to that community yeah search and rescue we've got a number of search and rescue groups that are in the system now um, and they're putting their tracks in and so on and so forth uh, when they're doing searches uh, they're maintaining records and sometimes better records than some of the the canine handlers for law enforcement do simply because i think they're very dedicated to what they do they have mm-hmm. a strong desire they they are doing things out of their own pocket there's just a very different um, type of attitude a lot of times with some of the SAR teams. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's kind of a pleasant thing to see when you get in there and you see in the system that are using it properly. Uh, I, I want to go back uh, just a little bit. I was going to mention, too, uh, sometimes we have um, clients that contact us, and they we have two sets of timetables that are built into the CATS system. Um, and you talk about time and, and that type of routine. When somebody does... Uh, an event within the CAT system. We have what we call a training session, which is when you're going to train, say, from um, noon until, say, 1,800 hours. So you're going you're gonna to get that uh, period of time of training in, and you're going to be able to do, you know, two or three narcotic searches and maybe a, a building search or whatever it is that you're doing, or maybe it's just straight detection work. But in each one of those, there's a training activity. So you might, during that those hours of time, you're going to put down a training activity, narcotics training activity, and you're going to have all your stuff listed and so on and so forth. With each activity, the system, by double-clicking on a calendar, it puts in the time and date, uh, the time that the, that the problem is set and the time that the problem is started and the time that the problem ends. So it's very easily, and the system puts out reports that show you exactly what kind of time is spent on what we refer to as nose time only. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the handlers want to find ways around that. And you can turn it off in our system uh, if you want, because we just had so many people calling and said, look, it's getting in the way. We don't want to, they can still put the times in, but the system will also check to see if uh, the times are correct. In other words, if you've got the start time uh, after the finish time, obviously it's not going to work. 
So the system checks for that. Um, so there's certain things in there that can give value uh, to show a trainer what you know what type of times they're looking at as far as their search times are concerned. But a lot of handlers prefer to not use that, uh, which I try to advise against for specifically the reason that you're talking about. Uh, they've got to look past just the initial um, time that it's taken to put it in the system. It's important that they understand what their dogs are doing. And if they're always in there, every search is under two minutes, that's going to show up real quick with the mm -hmm. type of record keeping that the system does. And so very quickly, uh, an educated trainer is going to look at that and say, hey, we need to expand our training out here a little bit. We need to do a little bit more with what we're doing to get these dogs on tap with longer searches and so yeah. that the searches are more varied. And that's, to me, that's very important. Absolutely. The, you know, uh, it, it again, these keeping records helps you from falling into those ruts like you were just talking about. It, 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 because we're creatures of habit, we can't help but do some of these things that we're doing. And before we know it, the dog, who's an expert at many aspects about us, about reading us, all of these things, and without records, some type of oversight, you know, you can get you know, your trainer to help you out and friends to call out certain things. But when you see things in black and white or even easier these days, when those numbers flash on the screen, you're like, holy cow, it's been a long time since I've done this particular training odor. Or how long have I done since it's been I've done a blank? All these different things that we talked about, records are crucial for that information. And I absolutely I, I love the fact that you're seeing an uptick in the SAR community using records. Um, and I guess since we're on that subject, let some of the SAR community know, cause we, we got a pretty good following of those that listen to the podcast. Um, what is it that you have that you, in your system that is very helpful for those in the SAR community or what have you seen, you know, from the feedback that you've gotten in regards to those that use it already, what have they really liked? What's the benefit for them? Because again, most think of the program as a law enforcement type of uh, software, but like I know, you know, I've, I've used CATS and been a part of your system since, like you said, when you first started it, the first agency I worked with, we used it. Um, but again, there's many, it's new to them. So talk about it for the SAR community, what uh, CATS has done for them and what you've gotten, the feedback you've gotten. Um, always positive. Uh, they've, um, we've even had input from some of the SAR teams of things that they want to see. And then when we teach them a little bit more about the system, they find out that in most cases it's already there for them. Yeah. So they're using it for searches, area searches. Uh, they're using it for, um, their tracking. Uh, one of the things that, that there's going to be some improvements in the system, something that's going to be coming out with uh, right now, you can bring in GPS from virtually any device. If you can export, you can import it into CATS. And we're in the process of building um, something special that's going to go along with CATS uh, directly uh, from phones as time progresses here. Nice. Um, but the the thing with um, with the search and rescue teams is that what they like about it is it, is that they can when they first come into the system, they can if they pick up the SAR template. A lot of that is already pre-prepped for them, but they can also, some of them are doing HRD work. So uh, when they're doing human remains and it's a little bit different from what the norm is, mm -hmm. uh, we've got, um, you know, the typical trackers and so on and so forth. 
What they really appreciate about the system is the fact that they can customize it to, to themselves. Um, anything that's law enforcement or that they don't use can be removed from every table in the system. Every table in the system is totally customizable to the end user, whether it be law enforcement, search and rescue or whatever. So the SAR teams come in wondering if it really works for them and then very quickly find out that it's very malleable and that they've got the ability to change it to exactly whatever it is that they're doing in their deployments. Now, you know, this has been a, a while since I played with this part or, or seen a change. Do you, for training, can you, now that we're seeing video used, obviously video has been used in law enforcement on the deployment side a lot, a lot more in the past, let's say, five years. Um, yes. How about training? If, whether you be search and rescue, law enforcement, whatever, are you up? Are you able to upload the videos from training into your records for training? Okay, the answer to this is yes and no. <laughs> so, and and there's a reason, Cameron. Yep. And first of all, yes, you can. We've developed the system so that you can. If we wanted to turn it on, we could turn it on. Uh, and the reason why we've done that is because we have the system deployed with some government agencies where they're using that aspect, so mm -hmm. it's developed. For that particular agency okay yeah so it's in the system we just haven't got it turned on for civilian law enforcement or for search and rescue yep. now the reason why is because quite frankly when they do an upload to the system what happens is that it expands the amount of space that the system needs sure. to be able to store yeah that costs more money which in turn we've got to increase the amount that we're charging for yeah so right now with law enforcement being our largest client base being law enforcement uh they are storing on the system that comes with the body count yes they correct. don't really have a need for it yeah. so we've never implemented in the system for law enforcement they really just don't don't need it um, however, with search and rescue, we may end up having to do that as time progresses, mm -hmm. if they are willing to pay what it costs to be able to do sure. those uploads. That's the only thing that, that is preventing us from turning it on simply because I don't want to have to charge more money than what we're already charging. So it's a balancing act. That, that's um, a so huge again, point. Yeah. And that's why the yes and no. Yeah. Um, yes, we can do it. Yes. We've actually got it active on some systems, but those are for people that are hosting it on their own. Uh, which is a very expensive endeavor. That's why it's more are more cost effective to just use the system that's up and running now, but it doesn't offer that ability at this point in time. It'll be interesting to see, you know, as we've seen, like we talked about earlier, detection changing and technology and science and all of these things that have come into it. I'll be curious to see if the next um, evolution in record keeping, just like it is on deployments, will start to include video of the teams in training. Now, the difference I think would be, um, you know, law enforcement more than likely isn't going to, I don't know, that's a catch 22. I don't know. Um, I was going to say that they probably wouldn't necessarily put their body camera on to record a training, but maybe they would. Um, but then there's also the ability for the trainer to film from a different point of view, which is, would be something like a GoPro or your phone or things like that. Now, obviously, in law enforcement, they stay away from using their personal phones for anything related to work because of the uh, legal aspects and concerns. But with that said, um, I'm just throwing it out there as I wouldn't be shocked if in X amount of years, recording of canine teams in training becomes more standardized is that that's something that has to be in records 
Okay, so that has been brought up, and it's something that we've dealt with extensively as a company. Yep. Um, and we were at the point, once we got the video done, it was ready to be implemented. I basically put it out there to, to those that are working the, the streets. What do you think about turning this aspect on? Would you use it? And the answer was emphatically no. I know. They were freaked out. I remember seeing that. Oh, yeah. And they did not want it. And the reason why they didn't want it is, well, what happens if the dog doesn't do good on bike training? He doesn't come off a bike. You know what? Um, I understand that. However, it should be logged anyway. You should mm -hmm. be writing that information down anyway. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, you know, the failure should be logged and then the correction, and you should be able to see it. So the good stuff comes along with the bad stuff. Yep. Um, but they're very, very concerned about that. And I understand that. Same. I get that. So Same. at this point in time, we haven't offered that option. Again, more due to cost involved. That It's hard enough now to get agencies to pay for it. And I can tell you, whether it be our system or somebody else's system, uh, the, it's minimal what they're paying for what they're getting. Oh, um, no, I know. I know. It, it really is. And it's been a struggle to be able to keep things going. <laughs> Uh, with all the stuff that happens behind the scenes, yeah. even with some of the other big companies that are competitors of ours, I know darn well that they've had to work hard to keep their pricing down yeah. so that guys can use the system because yeah. it's a, it, programming is ex extremely expensive and yeah. so is hosting. It's very, very expensive. Um, and that's one of the biggest things for, for me anyway has been trying to keep it. And we're probably one of the, we're not the highest, but we're one of the higher cost uh mm -hmm. systems that are out there um but there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that yep. cost us that money that benefits the user but it's not physically able to be seen as they're using it so um a lot of it is just a balancing act and trying yeah. to figure out what's best and i on the video thing when it comes to training i totally understand the concern i would be concerned as well on the aspect of interpretation of what is seen in a video because Correct. obviously many things that are seen can be easily explained and understood to the by the handler and the trainer those involved in the dog world go oh yeah that's what that means but the media the public at, and whatever if they saw something, whatever it is, they may not understand why that's occurring, whatever it is. Listen, we'll keep a detection just because of the podcast, but, and also it's an easier thing to sometimes explain, well, why did the dog go by the odor first, then work the room and then came back? And, you know, how come it just didn't, when it, you know, if the odor was right there or the substance was right there, how come it didn't immediately? And, you know, we can explain these things, you know, and these things are usually sometimes documented. They should be documented in the records that the airflow was going this way and temperatures and blah, blah, blah. Um, but a layman watching it, if you're in court or whatever, it, it does require a level of explanation, understanding of those that are watching it. And we know, um, good and bad, a picture slash video is worth a thousand words and the interpretation or the point of view can make a very big difference on how it's understood. So I very much get the concern, um, you know, hands down, but it's funny with that said, you know, back when I was a cop and this was going to be in the early 2000s, the I had a lot of the old school guys who I learned from hated the in-car cameras. They hated the body microphones. Um, we don't, you know, a lot of the same important discussions that we're having now about training and same video, they, they had the same arguments then. Yeah. And you know what? The system changed. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. 
I, I guess I'm, you know, kind of just getting forward thinking here going, you know, I won't be shocked. I mean, again, me and you sit on these boards when it comes to standards and things like that, where I, I just wouldn't be shocked if it, maybe it starts with certifications, you know, that could be one area where they want to see it, it the certification, uh, on video. Yes. Um, yep not to certify via video, but uh, the the certification that was witnessed by whatever evaluator and so forth on video. And it's funny that you were having that conversation because I've, you know, I've been a certifying official for a number of different organizations for some years now. And the more I do it recently, I kind of want a body camera, not only for what I saw, but for the discussions about what occurred, like why did, why was this okay? Or why did this team, you know, how did, how did this get called as an alert and that kind of stuff? Um, video, video, sorry, Cameron, but video is an invaluable training aid. Absolutely. To be able to go sure. back and analyze after a training session, what you've done when you're sitting on from the outside. Absolutely. Uh, and looking at what you and your dog did, it's an invaluable training aid. All of so our students, all of our students that go through our school here every day ends in a video debrief of everybody. So the cool thing yep. is every handler is videoed. Then at the end of the day, we sit down and every handler in the group watches all the other handlers videos. And we talk about what we saw and what happened. And then our point of view as a trainer, and then the point of view as handlers who then are for the first time seeing the, this other team work, all of that has been super valuable. Every handler hands down has said it, it really helped them improve their handling skills going over that. So, you know, as we're, as we're, you know, going down a wormhole here a little bit, I, I just think, you know, this conversation, I hope kind of, you know, puts a light bulb on for some that, Hey, um, we might need to make sure if this were to happen during our time in canine, we're ready to do it a and to be forward thinking enough and prepared that it's not going to like freak you out when all of a sudden, something comes up and then it's agency X that from now on has to, you know, videotape all their asserts or a certification <laughs> authority, whoever they are says, you know what? Um, you know, the use of cameras is so easy these days. Every evaluator will be wearing a GoPro type or body camera to record the interaction of the certification and what occurred or stationary cameras are placed within the search areas um, to document as a, you know, another set of eyes as to what occurred. You know, what's kind of funny is, uh, as I say this, even NYPD, they film their handler tryouts. They film a lot of the training and they do it for two reasons. One, union requirement, because if handlers, are, people are trying out for canine and there was an argument right. about something, they have the ability to say, here's what happened. Um, just like the body cameras on, on actual deployments. Um, so I, I just see something very similar um, to pay attention to in, uh, at least is, I have a feeling it's going to start in certification. And then unless some weird thing happens, uh, legally, and maybe it starts in the patrol world first, maybe the, the bite dog programs, um, are required to film more of their training and training techniques or something <clears throat> along these lines. Who knows? Well, that's, that was, that was the community that went against it the most oh, as far of as the idea is concerned, right? Yeah. And and again, I can understand why. Yeah. But, you know, um, it's interesting, Cameron, when I look uh, and I deal with people all the time on this, <coughs> excuse me, um, 
and and it's a it's a sore point with me because I look at the capability and the equipment and the, the things that we've got available to us for training. And they, right now, I don't think there's been any better time uh, in the history of police canine uh, with better trainers than, than what we have out there right now. And yet we seem to have a lot of problems on the road, especially with the with the bite dogs. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the question is, why is it is it because of lack of training? I don't think so. I think the training ability is there, but it, a lot of it depends on who you go to for training and what their priorities are. And when the use of a police dog back in the day was mostly tracking and every once in a while you got a bite, even today, the bite ratio, when I took stats uh, across the nation uh, in preparation for my last book, I wanted to know what the bite ratios were. So I got it in the multiple demographics, uh, but what I, and, and I put the information in, but one of the ones that stood out to me is that it was, I think nationwide, it was like, I can't even remember now. I think it was around 8%, 8.3% was the dog bite ratio nationwide. Yeah. um, uh, With every, you know, everything combined together. Mm -hmm. So if your bite ratio is 8.3% nationwide, why is that tracking or using the dog's olfactory capabilities in any format, especially for cross-trained dogs and so on and so forth, why is it that we spend a significant portion of our training night, maybe 60% training bite work <laughs> and maybe 10% on narcotics kind of routine mm-hmm. and maybe another 30% on building searches and tracking and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, when the dogs are utilized more for their olfactory capability, why do we focus so much on the bite work? Yeah. And it's always about the bite work. It's not about necessarily the uh how clean the dogs are or how to recall the dog as scenario-based training and so on and so forth so a lot of it has to do with what the priorities are in training as well and what you record and how you record it yeah i mean and i know the majority of that answer comes to two things one high liability training so that's why it gets a lot of attention and two that's the fun stuff you know, you that's know. exactly right. Number two, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, especially <laughs> and also. And, and what I found when you asked that question about handlers, you know, in, in their videos and do they want to, I had to die laughing in the sense that they were so against sharing that the videos of training yet yeah. half of these suckers put their stuff all over social media. Media, yes. They, they have, like, you, you just need to go to their social media profile and go watch half the stuff anyway. So yeah. in one case, they put it on blast everywhere. Look at my dog doing this and the bites and the blah, 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 and all of this stuff. And then if it's and if not necessarily them directly doing it, they let the seminar groups or the other people, the trainers, share it, like, nonstop. Correct. Like, all the time. But yet, all of a sudden, when the question's pointly asked, Hey, what do you think about? Oh, hell no. And then you go yeah. to that person's profile and they got 200 videos of their dog doing bite work. We, we never got a, I don't think we got a single positive on those. Saying, <laughs> hey, we've got it ready to go in cat. That's why I asked because we completed the in cats for the, for the client that we were working with. We could implement it in the current system. Yeah. And that was like a big, big no. So I said, okay. I know. Well, I, you, 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 you don't know how, how badly I want to get on there and go, you, all you sons of bitches have your social media plastered with bite work. Not everybody, but a lot of them, you know, a lot of people that are saying, no, hold on a second. Here's 10 videos from your social media feed showing bite work. How is, how in a sense is it, there is differences, but you know, how can you say no and then go do this? 
if you truly Correct. were sticking to the ethos of no video, you know, so that, right. that was just a funny thing that, that went there in that one. Um, it was interesting. I was surprised. I was surprised. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew I had a, obviously I knew it was going to be, uh, a point there where people were highly concerned and, you know, most would say no, but yeah, it was like not even a little bit of a yes. It was <laughs> absolutely freaking no way. Yeah, so exactly. the, uh, now in, in the record keeping as record keeping is growing and you talked about you people using, uh, it more from other types of disciplines. Have you, cause with the growth of the, uh, sport detection community, who are really highly interested in, I mean, I come across people all the time that are really interested in, in record keeping for their sport dogs. Have you considered that? What's your thoughts on, you know, opening or going into that market for offering those people who want to keep track of their dogs in detection? You know what? It, it, it's already there. I mean, it, the system is already built for that. Yep. And again, like SAR teams, they can customize it for whatever they want. So it's open and available to them should they want to do that. And um, the we, we've got we've got bed bug detection in the yep. system, but they don't come up. We don't implement it. Wasn't implemented as a bed bug detection type yeah. system, but they can come in and customize what they want. We've got HRD. We've got electronics mm -hmm. in the system mm -hmm. uh, for cell phones and that type of thing. We've got the narcotics, but these explosives, all those kinds of things. They're just setting it up for themselves the way that they want it. So it, it would be totally open to them. I, it's just, it's a, simply a, an area that hasn't yet reached out to us uh, or maybe because they haven't been made aware of it. That yeah, I was much. just going to say, really it, it's, I, I think this might cause some help, <laughs> but the, uh, the pod, <laughs> but and, and here's my point of view from using cats. I would say knowing the sport community that I do and then my trainer, Natalie, being much more heavily involved as both a handler and uh, trainer in it, I would say knowing cats, you, you could really just have a stripped down version of what you currently have. Um, like you said, because the infrastructure for everything they want is there. They just don't. I know, let's just say your demographic for using it is going to be probably majority is going to be over 40. Um, and out of that, there's probably, an, you know, let's just say 50 and up. So, you know, some are tech savvy, some aren't, because obviously our generation, you know, I'm pushing 50 now. So, you know, technology came around when we were, like you talked about, this came out while we were, you know, in our 20s or 30s. Yeah. So where we have a vast majority in the sport world that are above that 45 demographic, um, it just needs to be user, super user friendly. Um, very basic in the sense of here's an easy way to input the, what I put out in training. Here's, uh, you know, what I, here's what I search. Here's what I put out. Here's my search time. And then, like you said, customizable, the notes like you already have. I mean, so much of what's in cats is already there for this. You could just end up removing a significant portion of all the other stuff or some of those little hoops that you, you create for the professionals to have to make sure that they click this and click that, you know, you have that like always, you know, you can never, what, is that, what was the word I used to use for your, your program? You can never, you know, you never say okay enough or never click okay enough, you know, always click okay before you move on. So right. the, uh, some of that stuff wouldn't have to happen in the sport world. They wouldn't have to have as much redundancy, um, no. because of the, the the thing about it is that we've we've designed the system so you don't have to pay for the whole system either. Yeah. So I'm starting to get into an advertisement here. 
we don't you know <laughs> that's fine we don't want to get too far into it that way but basically there's different tiers with it yeah and so you've got your your premium package which anybody with a bike dog as far as law enforcement is concerned that's what they should be looking at uh people that have got detection only and are not doing bite work at all uh, mm-hmm. so they don't have to collect the bite stats and yep. bite demographics and protect themselves that way can go a lot of times if it's strictly detection only and they don't want to do some other stats uh they can get away with the light package but for people like that are doing what you're talking about now mm-hmm. just people in the sport world all they need is a training package yeah. and so the price comes down each time yeah. and you just turn on what you need and it's done yeah so um it's basically already there it's just a matter of them logging in going to work yeah well, maybe me and you may have, have to sit down and play with this a little bit and, and turn this idea into uh, potentially a, a, a reality for you and, and for the community. Because like I said, I you know, um, as I've gone around and done more in the sport world myself, you know, when we do these uh, CSDT classes, it's a lot of the trainers want this information. And what's really helpful about a record-keeping program, let's say I'm the trainer, I can set training up and then immediately share it to those who showed up, which is a great thing. Correct. You know, yes. that that's super helpful because then you don't have to have like everybody redo the same things I wrote down or what have you. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of people that are just happy with a notebook and a pencil. Cool, no problem. But it's not as easy with that notebook and pencil to really know how many hides have you had, how long has it been, how many exteriors, interiors, all the things that I know sport people keep track of uh, just to improve their skill set. So, um, you know, Sport people, if you're listening, uh, if you made it this far into the podcast, hey, you never know. We we might come up with something, you know, in the near future because I I, know, I see the demand for it, and you have the uh, software and the ability to, to to pull this off. And like I said, it's I, I would say it's like you said, if not ninety percent there, it's easily 85 percent there as oh, far yeah. as everything it's, you have. It's there in a heartbeat. It's just a matter of a click of a button. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, if you're the trainer, you also have the ability to go in and make notes on their files as well. Yes. If you want to give them hits and tips as to what to do to correct a problem, you can oh. log in there and, and do it. It's it's a breeze to work. In that that would be so helpful. Just for me as I travel, because I do so many traveling seminars, if these people had used some of these things and as I set up training, I just make those notes from my iPad and boom, and off it goes to their records. So, oh man, that's that's just a huge help. And if you're obviously someone who's who trains uh, numerous different types of clients, it's super helpful because you know time is our commodity at the end of the day. And if I can spend my time more productively versus going okay from one person to the next person and just redoing the same thing versus going hit send, everybody gets it at once, has their notes in there. That's fantastic. That's a huge help. So and and I know the community loves that too because they 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 seek feedback. Uh, very eagerly uh, in the sport world. You know, they, they want that coaching. They want that information. They want to review it later on see how they can improve. And then next time I see them, oh, look at that. Look what, look what it got better from our last time. And that's another one that would obviously highly uh, love using the videos. They would upload videos probably galore. <laughs> I might have to get another server if it, if it gets to that point. I'm telling you, I, just because a vast majority, when I do anything in the sport world, there's at least three or four cameras going. There's if somebody usually following a friend's following them, if they don't already have a GoPro on them, 
it's funny. I'm about ready to shoot a video later today because I have to do, I talked about this new camera that, that I use. Uh, it's called the DJI action two. It's, it's the same thing as those little small GoPros that used to be little cube, yeah. but the, the action two just, they, they, it's just an improved version of it, but it, Literally, you just put a lanyard around your neck. It goes under your shirt. The camera just magnetically snaps to your shirt, and it's an inch by an inch square. So it's wow. barely noticeable. It's got it's 4K. It's got the all these steady features to it, but it's so easy to use. And I'm like, man, if this become keeps becoming even easier, dog handlers galore can record everything. You know, yeah. you're gonna turn into the sport world into a bunch of cops in the sense that everybody's got a camera on them all the time. Right. <laughs> so, because it is, I mean, and I has the potential. What's that? It has the potential. To oh get yeah, there. absolutely. You know, and I, and I joke around. I hated doing videos for years, and then all of a sudden now I video everything. So go figure. So I know if this, you know, uh, old dog can you learn a new trick. I'm sure you know others would will probably start to break because again, the the easier it is to use, the more we're going to use it. So. The uh, last question I have is in relation, this is more of a selfish one. So I'm getting more into forensic type of canine detection, um, which is already very popular. I won't say popular is the right word, but it's used a whole lot more in Europe than it is here. I'm assuming, like you said, because cats is very customizable, um, doing things like blood detection, semen detection, um, like you said, obviously the electronics is already there. Um, I'm assuming, do you have any arson handlers that are doing this with cats? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I say, it's it, the whole system is totally customizable. If you want blood detection, you put it in Yep. Okay. and it's, and it comes up on the, on the reports, the way that you've got it in there. Um, virtually I, I'm not sure how many different tables. I think there's over 60 tables in wow. the system. Wow. And out of those 60 tables, I think there's 58 that are totally customizable. Uh, and most of them are customizable on the fly. If you're a single yeah. user, you're in there, you don't even have to leave the page that you're on. If there's something that you need in your list and it's not there, you can add it on the fly nice. yeah. and you just carry on. You don't have to leave the page and go into the back office in order to add it. So it's, it doesn't matter what it is that you want to track the system will take. And what's cool is you are also incorporating this into research. You know, like we talked about with one of our uh, common friends, the research world is starting to tap into utilizing cats to upload data from research. So that way we have even more information in regards to whether it be the types of equipment we're using that collects the data for us. Like we were talking about earlier was the smart wheel by Simon and the uh, smart boxes, even though they don't have a name yet, the olfactometers actually that Dr. Hall uses all of these things automatically collect data and to have uh, a basically your system, a, a records keeping system that this information can dump right to is another, you know, utilization outside the typical law enforcement way of data collection. That's super helpful for all of us later on down the line in detection. Correct. It's uh, in this case, it's, it's not something that I'm at liberty to speak about, sure. uh, but it's very refined uh, would have very refined use, but there's really no limits uh, uh, to what can be done and, and from the data gathered and the information that it can output for you. Yep. There really is no limit. Well, I want to, so, you know, how do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? If they want to get cats, tell us where to go. So the go to cats platinum, it's K-A-T-S platinum.com. Will get you um, some background on the, what the system is there. There's buttons on there if they want to uh, try out the system. It's a free trial for 45 days. 
if there's any questions, it's just a matter of picking up the phone and, and calling me. Our phone number is on the website, as well as if you're in the system, it's always in the bottom left-hand corner of the system, so you can get in touch with me. Uh, my email is R-S-E-D-E-N, Romeo Sierra, Echo Delta, Echo November, at police, and the letter K, the number 9.com, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions that anybody might have. I can tell you firsthand, and and, and I know this, but even not just being a friend with Bob, he responds so fast and responds no matter what to anybody that reaches out. I've had different people always tell me, oh yeah, I had a question. I, I shot a message to Bob and he replied to me. Um, you know, I've had cops from all over go, yeah, I just talked to Bob the other day. I had a question about my record keeping and he was right there, walked me through it. And I've, I've used you in that way. I've had you get online before with friends and companies that were looking at you utilizing cats. You, I can easily say in this day and age, uh, Bob is somebody very, you know, easy to get a hold of. He, he's very timely in getting back to you. And that isn't easily said these days. So thank you for always being able to help us out and get better in our data collection as dog people and just being a good steward for all of us in the canine world through your books and your you know seminars and everything you've done. Well, I appreciate it, Cameron. Thank you very much. It's been a it's been a long ride and I've enjoyed it very much. And <laughs> the best part about it is I'm still learning. And that's that's bonus. Absolutely. And, and like I said, it's, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and, you know, thank you to everybody who's been listening and watching today's podcast. And thank you from canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy.